You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Welcome to the Sunset Series, which is a program of Tribe Tel Aviv. Tonight we're going to hear about Iran, China, and the new threat to Israel. Our speaker is Elliot Shutoff, who I'd like to introduce. Elliot and I go back a number of years when he used to lead our tours uh, around Israel and his knowledge of the country and especially of the political and military situation always was very engaging. Uh, Elliot is a political and military analyst specializing in the Middle East conflict and the global war on terrorism. His writings on combat motivation and effectiveness in infantry units has been on the recommended reading list in the U.S. Army War College. In other words, he writes military strategy for the Israel Defense Forces, and his writings are picked up worldwide. His articles have appeared in the Washington Times, National Post of Canada, and numerous web journals. He is a lecturer at the University of Haifa and is writing a PhD dissertation in international relations at Bar-Ilan University on deterrence of terrorism. Elliot is a major in the IDF, the Israel Defense Force Reserves, and is a graduate of the Home Front Command Senior Commander's Course. He presently serves as a population officer in the operations branch of IDF Northern Command, Elliot moved to Israel in 1983 and is a founding member of Eshar, a community village in the Galilee where he resides. And uh, a couple of things uh, off, off the record. Uh, first of all, uh, Elliot told me that uh, he almost didn't make it tonight because of the events going on up north. He almost got called up. Uh, also, uh, whenever I would call him to see when he was free for, for touring, He would always uh, invariably say, well, as soon as I finish taking around this group of senators or these bigwigs from APAC. In other words, Elliot is the go-to person if you want to bring around a high-profile group who really want to find out what's going on in the country from someone who knows it in the inside. And I found out how much he knows it from the inside. After about seven years of having the privilege to spend a week with Elliot, I... I knew that he had been in active duty in the IDF, but when he started talking about the raids that were uh, carried out every night uh, into Judah, Yehudah, and Shomron, uh, the counterterrorism raids, so I would ask him, well, were you on any of those raids? He said, yeah, a few. I said, how many? And he said, well, when it got above 300, I stopped counting. So the point is that Elliot is not just a theorist in an ivory castle. He's been on the ground, knows the facts on the ground, is still on the ground. And um, Elliot, thank you very much for coming tonight and for sharing your, uh, your insights with us on the recent events and what's going on with Israel, Iran, and, um, and the New Deal with China. So I'd like to start off uh, by asking some questions, and we'll do this in question format. And um, the first two questions are, who is behind the recent explosions in Iran, uh, 12 of which there have been in the last four weeks, and why did whoever caused them do it now? 
a lecture the, that morning when we got the news. It was a Friday morning. And I said, you know, we can't rule out accident. After all, let's keep in mind that these places really are dangerous. And I, I, I don't think that um, that the average person, I don't know how many people here have, have served in, in the military, you know, Sahal or otherwise, uh, but it's really dangerous stuff. The enemy is is a danger, but you're you're going around with flammables, explosives, and things that are really not that safe to play around with to begin with. So an accident in a missile storage place or, or a fuel depot is not out of the realm of possibility. Twelve of them in twelve of them in four weeks starts to stretch the let's just say the, the the curve, the tail of the curve of probability. Uh, nobody's taken responsibility or credit. And I use the two sort of separately, but interchangeably. So the real question is who, who are the suspects? And there are essentially four that we have to keep in mind that once this stuff starts, other people can join in. In other words, this is an either and, or, and, or, and, or kind of a combination. Obviously, Israel's way up there on the list, and, and some of the targets like the Natanz um, Centrifuge Center is way, 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 way up there on Israel's list of let's take this out, and it was taken out. The United States, obviously, and, and I just want to remind everyone when I mentioned these individual suspects, if you will, uh, there's an and element to it as well. We've seen America and uh, and Israel cooperating in the past on Iran uh, and, and Iran-related issues. So America certainly, especially under the Trump administration, in contrast to the Obama administration, uh, Trump has has and I'm not going to get into American politics, but American policy, Trump has returned to the pre-Obama period of America's relationships, relationship with Iran or American administration's relationships with Iran uh, that started back in 1979, 1980 with the, the rise of Khomeini. Um, even, even Carter ended up having to see Iran as an adversary, and that became sort of the standard. And a more and more belligerent and bellicose Iran. So America's obviously uh, high on the list. Saudi Arabia. Let's not forget what Iran did to Saudi Arabia last year, taking out a major portion of its oil production and, and refining capability. And the conflict didn't end there. That's just part of an ongoing conflict. The Saudis are terrified of the Iranians, uh, terrified enough to almost become Zionists. And uh, it's well within reason that even if the Saudis didn't initiate, that they're at least somehow involved in facilitating this. And a fourth group that we don't talk about that much, but we should keep in mind, is that there's a huge active opposition in Iran uh, that has an interest in poking the regime in the eye, and that's exactly what this is doing. In other words, in addition to the physical damage being done by these attacks, again, one attack, two attacks, three attacks, okay. But by the time you hit a dozen, the regime is starting to look really stupid. Uh, it's looking incompetent. 
it's it's giving that um, I, I use an American baseball analogy. Uh, Babe Ruth had 714 home runs, but everybody who knows baseball remembers one of them, and that's the one where he pointed to the outfield and then on the next pitch hit a home run. Imagine how that pitcher felt. That's about how Iran feels today. And a regime, no regime can afford to look stupid. A totalitarian regime is least able to look stupid. So whether internal opposition was involved from the beginning, as these attacks continue, uh, my estimate is that there's a much higher likelihood that they're involved, whether they're actually initiating their own or supporting others. Let's remember that the Iranians just hanged a couple of guys who they claimed were Mossad and CIA agents. Um, in Iran, if you're opposition, calling you a Mossad agent is as good an excuse as any to hang you. So, Although with all these explosions going on, you can imagine that... Uh, there's probably some truth to it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, well, and, another question, are yes. these on site or are these F-35s which just um, around? And, and, and my guess would be, and remember, every time I say guess, it's, it's educated guess. Uh, my guess is that, that the answer is all of the above. I think some of it is cyber. Some of it is certainly kinetic. The attack on, on Natanz was certainly kinetic, uh, meaning an actual bomb went off or an explosive device went off. Is it F-35s? We know that the F-35s, our F-35s, have flown over Iran and back without the Iranians knowing about it until we told them. You know, by the way, thank, thank, thanks for the tour. Um, a couple of years ago, the head of Iranian, the chief of Iranian air defense was fired because he couldn't stop the F- F-35s from flying over. Uh, but also, let's, let's keep in mind that today with long-range guided missile capability, you don't have to fly over Iran to hit the targets. You can fly near Iran and launch. And this is, again, where Saudi Arabia comes into the potential mix, being permitted to fly over Saudi airspace and launch from there uh, certainly would give either Israel and or the United States the capability of launching things and, uh, and hitting, not just using cyber. It's also clear from our experience in Syria, these, I'm talking about the Israeli Air Force experience in Syria, that our anti-air defense capability in terms of electronics is far, far, far superior to anything being supplied into this region, whether it's homegrown or Russian import. Um, just to remind those of, I didn't hear? Even the S-400? The S anything hundred. Remember, the missile itself is the is is the the tail end of the process. If you can somehow jam or mess up either the radar or the electronics connecting the radar to the system, the missile is useless, and that that's where it's being stopped. It's not being stopped at at, at the missile end of of the launch. Um, the fact is. The result, results speak, speak for themselves. Uh, this is maybe an answer to a, to, to a question that you haven't asked. We've been fighting, Israel's been fighting Iran and Syria now for a few years, and it's regular. We're talking about almost every single night. 
And in the course, even if, if we say five, five nights a week over three years, you can do the arithmetic. That's a lot of airstrikes. In that period, we have lost one aircraft to a near miss, the F-16 that was shot down a couple of years ago, that actually made it back into Israel and crashed not far from my house. Um, that doesn't speak well for the Syrian air defense systems. And here, here I'll let you in on, on a little military secret. When they say our missiles chased the Israelis away, that's just a fancy way of saying they missed. Okay. So why now? Okay, why now? There, I think there are a few a few possible answers, and and here let me let me actually start with a, a bit of a contextual uh, point because it's gonna it's gonna come up in a number of, of different answers. I am an absolute rejecter of monocausal explanation. Uh, in other words, the single cause. This is why it's whatever. Okay. I believe that monocausal explanations are the result of lazy college professors who want to have one right answer for a question on an exam. In fact, as we know from our personal lives, as well as in, in sort of grand politics, usually it's a combination of factors that lead to the point in which something happens. So one simple answer may be capabilities have, have sort of converged at this point. The cyber capabilities, the electronic capabilities, the air capabilities. Uh, so that, that's one part of an answer. A second part of an answer is that the Iranians have basically gone public with their ignoring any of the restrictions, not of the Iran deal, which were no real restrictions, but restrictions by the Security Council and the International Atomic Energy Authority. And they basically told the world to stick it. And they're moving ahead much more quickly than they ever were, were before, meaning they're getting closer and closer to a threshold. And so if the Europeans are theoretically still in the agreement, mm -hmm. the Americans are out of it. Okay, they can say, well, the Americans are out of it, so we'll stick it to you. But what about the Europeans? Theoretically, they're still in it, right? The Europeans, right. <laughs> um, yeah, but what are they going to do? Okay. And well, they could say something at least. They could, but the Europeans haven't said anything. I, I, I'm sorry to say it this way, but anything seriously clever in international politics for about 300 years. Uh, sorry, fact of life. And. They've certainly gotten it all wrong outside of Europe. They haven't done too well inside of Europe either for, for a couple of centuries. Uh, let's say, let's mark Waterloo as the last really good one. Um, so it's a couple of hundred years. So, so short term, uh, this might set back the nuclear program a bit. Uh, what... But real question is, you know, Suxnet sets about a couple of years, you know, right. two, two years back, four years forward, two years back, four years forward. Good. What is the long term? Okay, so so actually, let me let me reframe, and then the follow up that will be: Will China change that equation? But okay. Let's ask what's long. -term. 
All right. So for, first of all, let me reframe your question slightly, not to avoid answering it, but to answer the sort of the right frame of it. We're not setting them back. We're setting back their timetable. Okay. That's a really important distinction. Okay. In other words, whatever they've achieved, we're not unachieving them. If I can coin that kind of a word, they, they, they've gotten to as far as they've gotten and whatever is being done now is not driving them back from that point. What we are doing, whoever it is, the we is, is taking a timetable that might have been, and now I'm making up numbers, right? But might've been six months and slowing it down to a year or a year and a half or two years or whatever. So we're slowing down the progress. We're not driving it backwards. And it's an important distinction. Um, our strategy, and this is true with our strategy against them in Syria, as well as our strategy against the, the nuclear program, is based on an objective that I believe is both ethically correct and ultimately will fail. And the ethically correct is to try to stop them without having to go to war with them. I think that any, any strategy that's built on the idea of achieving what you need to do without going to war is an ethically good strategy to begin with. I'm one of those people who believes that war is a really bad thing. It's not the worst thing, but it's really bad. You, you avoid it as much as you possibly can. It's even worse if your son is serving in the army. Sorry? It's even worse if your son is serving in the army. Precisely. Um, and if it's only one son, it's not as bad as if it's, just tell you a parenthetical aside, in 2006, during the summer war with Hezbollah, I had three kids in uniform in the north, and I was as well. So it, it, was, a, it was a family experience, and rockets were falling around my house. Uh, but otherwise, it was, it was a wonderful summer. Uh, so, yes. The closer you are to it, the less you want to see it actually happen. Here, I'm just talking about sort of in a, in a, in a more theoretical frame. Um, the idea is to stop them without going to war. I believe that that strategy will fail. I know it is failing, but that it will ultimately fail unless there's some, some sort of outside intervention. Uh, Mashiach could come. That would be a great intervention. But Failing that Iranian regime could implode. Okay, so that was my next point. It could. I don't see it, but that doesn't mean it can't happen. In other words, here, here, let, let's make a distinction. Uh, when the Soviet Union fell apart, everybody said, "How could you not see it?" And the answer is because it didn't look like it was going to; it just did. So, could we wake up tomorrow morning and find the regime you know, blown, blown apart? Possible. I wouldn't bet lots of money on that as a possibility. However, part of the Israeli strategy has that built in as a kind of, I call it con constructive procrastination. In other words, you know what? If it falls apart in a month or in two months or three months or in six months, and we've managed to, to push this thing down the road far enough that it happens, two thumbs up, great strategy. Unable to see the invisible, I would say that where we're sitting today 
it's a strategy that will ultimately fail. And that's why I said other than some sort of external force coming in on it. The Iranians are not giving up. The Iranians are absolutely committed to a number of things, and one of them is the annihilation of Israel, and incidentally, the extermination of the Jewish people. And make no, no mistake about that. If you want references, I can provide. By the way, Elliot, excuse me. Uh, people can post questions on the chat, and uh, Shannon will, uh, will bring them up after, uh, after we're done with the main part of the program. So please, your questions, thoughts, uh, please start posting. So, in other words, the Iranians are not going to be convinced to change their objective based on Israeli strategy. And I, what I'm about to say, I, I say advisedly, any more than Hitler was going to change his decision to annihilate the Jews based on anything that happened in the course of World War II. So again, it's a strategy that I support, knowing that it will, in all probability, fail. What is the definition of failure? And I, I mixed Syria in with the, the nuclear, but the answer to both questions is the same. We have strategic thresholds that we've determined. With the nuclear one, it's reaching a certain point of enrichment, reaching a certain point of, of development, and it, uh, technically it doesn't really matter what it is. What we call red lines. The red lines, exactly. Uh, and, and again, as I said, te technically it doesn't matter what that red line is. There is a red line. It's been established. Our intelligence people have been told these are the factors that you're looking for. And when you see these factors, the red line has been reached. And here, let me just add as an aside, if you're thinking to yourselves, well, how do you know that the intelligence people will see it? Almost all intelligence failures, and I'm thinking, I'm just Pearl Harbor, Yom Kippur War, were strategic failures of analysis, not of collection. In other words, the data was there, it was misanalyzed. Once the intel people are told, this is what you're looking for, X, Y, Z, the chances of them missing them are infinitesimal. And once those points are brought back, the decision has already been made. It just has to be executed. That means war. Whether it's a an airstrike, whether it's a missile strike, whether it's a combination, whether it's land, air, sea, whatever it is, there's a point beyond which Israel will say, we cannot permit this situation to continue for another week or two weeks or whatever, and then we must act. And that's actually a failure of the strategy that we're using today. In other words, if we, if we get to that point, and I believe it's a when, not an if, when we get to that point, it will be, that will be the failure of the strategy. Um, so do you feel that we've, do you feel that you've hit the end of your, uh, of your talk and we're ready to move on to our uh, question and I answer? Have, I have a question, couple, there's a couple more questions in our ori original presentation. Okay. So, Elliot. What yes. about 
um, two more factors. One is, what about the $400 billion uh, trade agreement that was just announced between China and Iran? And I'm not so much interested in the U.S. side of it, but more in the Israel implications for Israel. And then the second question will be, what about uh, the uh, strike today of Hezbollah in the north? Okay, so first of all, China is becoming an increasing problem in global politics. Um, here, full disclosure, I was in China six years ago. I was invited, and, and if, if any of you, by the way, can think of anything more surreal than what I'm about to tell you, please feel, feel free to volunteer it. I was brought to China by the Chinese Army General Staff, the, the People's Liberation Army General Staff, to give them a series of lecture on, lectures on Sun Tzu's Art of War. And if you can imagine anything more surreal than a nice Jewish boy from Israel, originally from New York, in Tsingtao, China, lecturing a bunch of Chinese generals on Sun Tzu, let me know, because it, it was about as surreal as it, as it gets. Sun Tzu is what, what period? Sun Tzu was, was a 500 BC Chinese strategist who wrote a fantastic little book, and it's, it's, it's 6,000 words, it's 20 pages, called Principles of the Art of War. It's to this day a classic on strategy. Um, and they wanted me to give them a series of lectures on how it applies to counterterrorism. So, but if you would ask me six years ago, is China an imminent threat? My answer would have been guardedly no, guardedly. Um, today, that's, I say the opposite. China has become a belligerent bellicose country for a whole bunch of reasons, including internal ones. And their move into Iran has multiple purposes. Some of them um, purely economic. China is in trouble economically at the moment, or it sees trouble down the road. I don't know how many of you saw that Japan is pulling all of its industries out of China. That's going to hurt China very, very badly. Uh, COVID-19 is ultimately going to hurt China very badly. So they're looking to wherever they can. So that's one. Two, on the principle of my enemy's enemy is my friend, go in with Iran because of the United States. Let, let's, let's also keep in mind that I know it's tough for us, for us as Israelis. We're not the center of everybody's strategy. Okay, we're a byproduct, although to be honest, the Chinese are not happy with us because we made deals with them to transfer technology that the Americans nixed. And frankly, correctly, we said, you know what, we may love you Chinese guys, but America is our buddy and we're going to go with them because it's America. So they don't mind hurting us, but I don't think they're doing it in order to hurt us. It'll, it's another reason why I believe that the, the implosion that you referred to earlier in Iran is further down the road than anybody thinks. I think that, that, that the Chinese connection now with, will be a breath of fresh air to Iran. Uh, they're, they're looking for, for any, any access they possibly can, and China is going to provide it to them. Sanctions will not work with a connection to China.
including uh, nuclear resources? I don't think China's going to go that far. I don't think they'll go that far. I don't think they need to. Uh, the, the Chinese know how to play the strategic game. They're not going to go way, way out on a limb, but a bit of a way, absolutely. And that, that hurts the overall sort of pressure regime on Iran. Will that uh, make America view it the way, uh, you know, during the Cold War, every Middle Eastern conflict was really America and Russia playing out in the Middle East? Are we going back towards that scenario? I don't think so. I, I think that the Cold War model is misapplied here. Um, I think that, that one, of, one of the things, and most of us are, are are either Cold War or post-Cold War types by, by the ages of the people I see in the few pictures that I see, um, in the sense that our understanding of world politics was shaped by the Cold War. And I think that, that the most important factor of the Cold War that we need to consider is that it was probably the most stable political period of 50 years uh, in the history of humanity. Obviously, it had dangers and it had its moments. There was that Cuba thing in, in 62. Uh, but for 50 years, the lines didn't change, certainly not voluntarily. Now, countries were conquered, peripheral countries, Vietnam, for example. Uh, but here's a trivia question for the evening. I won't embarrass you. I'll give you the answer. There was only one major country that voluntarily changed sides in the Cold War in the entire half century of the Cold War, and that was Egypt. Okay. Where we are today, people say that we're in, in the 1930s, pre-World War II. I don't think so. I think we're in the, the pre-World War I period where all sorts of power players are jockeying against each other in classic diplomacy, in other words, the, the 1912, 1913, 1914 period was much more classic than any other period since then. Uh, and which is why, and I'll, I'll give you some examples of it. People were very, got very excited a few years ago when the Russians and the Turks signed an agreement and a treaty. My point at the time was, I'm not impressed. Russia and Turkey have been adversaries for 400 years a piece of paper isn't going to make any difference. And here we are, and we see that they're, they're back in conflict again. Okay? Let's not forget, and I'll use a, a pre-World War II analogy. Let's not forget that, that Hitler and, and Stalin signed a non-aggression pact in August 1939. And it worked really well right up until Hitler canceled it with that little invasion in June 41. Well, it's 162 divisions between friends. Uh, but, but the pre-World War I analogy, I think, is better... On the day that the Germans declared war in 1914, the Kaiser was convinced that the British would remain neutral. That, and that, that's where we are. In other words, if we look at Iran, Turkey, Russia, China, who's against who? It's everybody against everybody. Combined against the United States, because America is the team to beat. But even there, not absolutely, because they need America for other things. Not Iran, obviously, but Turkey, for example. 
So it's not that clear black, white, our side, their side of the Cold War in the Middle East today. Okay. We have an Airbnb booked or uh, above Nimrod for after Tisha B'Av next week. Uh, will we be able to go on vacation in the Northern Golan? In if, a you're week? Willing to, if you're willing to um, brave COVID-19. Oh. Uh, so what about Hezbollah Northern border? Uh, and can the skirmishes spiral into uh, something greater? Okay. My best estimate is no. But I, I hesitate because these things can also get out of hand. Let me let me backtrack it a bit and, and explain my answer. First of all, let's understand Hezbollah is not a totally independent organization. And many commentators refer to Hezbollah as a proxy of Iran, and that's just not true. Hezbollah is a wholly owned subsidiary force of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. And just to give you an idea of how close the relationship is, when America took out Soleimani a few months ago, the Iranians turned to Nasrallah and asked him to take Soleimani's place. Wow. Okay? Does that, does that tell you something? How did we know about that? What? Why didn't we know about that? Well, those of us who are listening knew about it. Mm-hmm. All right. I can give you much more background on it. Let, let, let me just say this, that, that Hassan Nasrallah is a cleric. He's not secular. He's, he's, he's a, a religious ordained, for lack of a better term, cleric, who got his ordination from the Khomeini school in Najaf. When he takes, when he gets an order from Khamenei, the supreme leader of Iran, it's not just a political order, it's a religious one. And I think that understanding the, that impact is very important in understanding who, who, who Nasrallah is and what Hezbollah is in the constellation of Iran. Don't confuse Hamas with Hezbollah in terms of the relationship with Iran. Don't confuse the other militias like the Houthis with the Hezbollah relationship to Iran. Now, why do I say all of that? We have made clear, and they believe us, that the next round with Hezbollah will be the last round with Hezbollah. We're going to give them a religious experience, the likes of which they have never seen before in their lives. And they, they know what they believe in. Iran will not waste Hezbollah, which is why most of the action for the past few years has been out of Gaza. Remember, Hamas is a, is a client proxy of Iran. The Iranians will happily fight to the last drop of Palestinian blood. They won't do that with Hezbollah. Now, they will use Hezbollah, but they won't waste them. Hezbollah now is caught on the horns of a dilemma. We killed one of their guys in Damascus last week, intentionally, unintentionally. I don't know, they didn't consult me. But we took out one of their guys in, in, in an attack on weapons storage in the Damascus area, and they swore vengeance. Okay, fair enough. The attack today, just note, 
the, the information is still coming in. Three to five Hezbollah guys got across the border near one of our outposts, our outpost on, on Hardov called Gladiola, commonly known as Shaba Farms. They were picked up on whatever devices we use to pick these things up. And we fired on them and they fled back to Lebanon. In other words, and then later on, Nasrallah said, no, 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 don't worry. The account is still open. We're going to do something. Fair enough. I believe that they will. And that's why I can't give you a guarantee that on the day that you're going up there, it's not going to be the day. But one thing that Nasrallah learned in 2006 is to be very, very careful about what he does. And I think he knows, and I'm not a fan of this particularly, but we've set up rules of the game, if you will, along the border. We will accept a couple of casualties. We won't accept them dragging our people live or dead into Lebanon. And I believe that what they're trying to do is take out a target, a vehicle, wound or kill a few soldiers and get out. And they're not going to press that. In other words, these five guys, three to five guys, whatever, when they were fired upon, didn't engage, they disengaged. And that's significant. They didn't have 200 guys behind them, and they have the men. They have the manpower. They didn't have 200 guys behind them to give them support and covering fire to press the objective forward. As soon as they hit something, they backed off. So it's my belief, now I say belief because, again, these things can get out of hand. There's a a famous quote attributed to many people, but the original was to uh, 19th century chief of the German general staff, von Moltke, who said, no plan survives the first contact with the enemy. Once it happens, it could get out of hand. But their plan, as far as I can see, is not to create a war along the northern border until Iran is ready to go to war. In other words, and that's what they're doing in Syria. That's that's the Syrian part of, of my earlier remarks. When they're ready, they will both go and they'll throw Hamas in, into it as well and, and who knows what else. Um, but they're not there yet. They're certainly not there yet. So I see them being very cautious. That doesn't mean, as I said, doesn't mean nothing will happen. And it doesn't mean that you're, I'm, I'm a devout disciple of Murphy. Uh, the day you're scheduled to go could be the day. That's not something I wish on you, but, um, but I, I don't see a, a massive conflagration happening in the near future. Okay. Thank you. I'm going to hand it over to Shannon now. And, uh, I'm sure more insight will come out of it. So thank you for part one. My pleasure. Very insightful. insightful. Wow, that was very direct and insightful and straight to the point. So thanks so much for really getting to it and explaining it in a way that everyone could understand. Thank you. That's how we know that you're a professor. (laughs) Tell that to my students. Okay, I will. Actually, actually, I'm, I'm not anymore. I, I, I stopped teaching uh, a, a few years ago. 25 years was enough. I, I did my time. Okay. Um, so you're teaching us tonight. 
So we have, and not only are you teaching us tonight, but you're want, not all of the guests on the show drink alcohol as I always ask them to. So thanks so much. <laughs> um, so question from Mike Roth, and everyone is said this was very interesting. Um, under which state of the world does Iran have a lower probability of developing a nuclear weapon? One, if the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the nuclear, the Iran nuclear agreement was still being honored, less centrifuges, far less enriched uranium, united international opposition to weapon development, or two, without the Iran deal ever existing in the first place. I think the, the answer is, is none of the above. Uh, look, the Iran deal the JCPOA, uh, to quote uh, Dershowitz, after the deal was signed, or actually it was never signed, after it was concluded, he said he wouldn't have trusted the American negotiating team to negotiate a 30-day lease on an apartment. Uh, there's a term for, for deals like that. It's called... Swiss cheese where there are more holes than cheese. The Iranians, the Iranians did something, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to, to approach this from three different directions. Let me, let me start with this. Everybody knows that Putin is a chess player. A lot of people don't realize that chess was invented by the Persians. They know how to play the game. A nuclear Weapons system is not just an atomic bomb. It also requires delivery systems. And what the Iranians did under the JCPOA, because what was critical for them was to get the, the sanctions lifted, what the Iranians did was say, okay, we're going to slow down the, the uranium aspect of our program and step up the ballistic missile aspect of the program because that's not covered by the JCPOA. Okay. So they didn't slow down, they just shifted emphasis. Remember also the JCPOA had a burnout period. Uh, it was going to end. And here, you know, those of us who plan on being dead in the next 10 years probably didn't care. For the rest of us, it matters that over the, after 10 years or so and then and beyond, it was going to evaporate and the Iranians could do whatever they wanted. So, that didn't work. As I said before, a, a non-JCPOA world in which not everybody is 100% on board, and China, as I was saying earlier, is clearly not, and they're not the only ones, uh, means that sanctions will have no effect on their behavior. I'm choosing my words carefully. Will sanctions ultimately be the straw that breaks the camel's back of the Iranian regime against domestic opposition? Could be. I will tell you that the more a policy looks like Rube, a Rube Goldberg contraption, the less likely it's going to work. And that's what all of these end up in, in the end. As I said earlier, the Iranians are intent on achieving the objectives that they've set for themselves. And part of 
diplomacy coercive and otherwise. In other words, you can look at JCPOA as the carrot end of diplomacy and the sanctions side of it as the stick end of diplomacy. Is all about convincing the other side that it's not worth it for them to continue along the way that they're going. When you have an ideological regime that is solidly locked into its objectives, you're not going to convince it to change its direction. And that comes back to what I said earlier, why, why I believe that ultimately any strategy that sees this ending short of war is a strategy that is most likely going to fail. I'm not hearing you. No, no. How about now? Now. Okay. It was trying to put my headphones in. Um, if you take airstrikes, this question is from Sam Litman. If you take airstrikes on Israel and terrorist attacks as a function of time, the data shows more attacks on Israel during Republican administrations versus Democrat, but response to attacks usually seems stronger by Israel during Democrat administrations as seen during 2019 attack on Israel by Gaza. Israel did not respond the way it did during the attacks, during attacks with Obama in office. If the pressure is on Israel to not respond stronger from Republican administration than than Democrats. The question is, is the pressure on Israel to not respond stronger with a Republican administration over a Democratic one? No, I think it's exactly the opposite. I think that when Israel feels more secure in its backing from America, it feels less pressure to respond militarily to attacks. Let's keep in mind that all of this, and again, if we're talking about terrorism, uh, whether by rocket or by ground attack, terrorism is primarily a, I'm trying to choose the right word here, a threat communication more than it is devastation. In other words, the the rockets and and and. Let me just clarify a point. Hezbollah is not a terrorist organization anymore. Hezbollah is, a, is an army, and they need to be moved into a different frame. But Hamas is still a terrorist organization. And especially with the Iron Dome system, the devastating threat from Hamas is minimal. And I want to emphasize the word devastating. The Israeli response is a signaling response where in either case, Democratic or Republican administration, we're not eliminating Hamas's capability. We're trying to convince them you don't want to do this anymore. The more secure Israel feels in its backing from America, the less it's going to feel the need to retaliate. Now, let me just add parenthetically to that. I don't agree with that policy. But, I, but that's where it's coming from on a governmental level. When you feel stronger, you feel less inclined to retaliate because your strength is projected through your alliance as well. When you feel weaker, you have to sort of act uh, more violently 
in order to get across to, to, to your adversary that you're not going to take what they're doing. Okay, thanks so much. We'll move to the next question. I also thought that was a nice metaphor for life. When you're strong, you feel secure and you don't lash out as yes. much. Um, question from Liat. What do you predict for the future of Israel if you believe current strategy will eventually fail? Wow. I don't do prophecy. Uh, I'm, I'm a disciple of two great political philosophers, Winston Churchill and Yogi Berra. <laughs> Who, who both said it's best to prophesy about things that have already happened. Um, here, here's, here's the problem. First, first of all, let, let, me, let, me, let me start with what I can see in terms of projection forward. Israel is a strong country with a strong military, and that doesn't mean that it will be that way forever, but we can look at that on, on a basis, economically strong, uh, technologically strong, militarily strong, and even with all of the nonsense that's going on, socially strong. Um, and I say nonsense, of course, in quotes, because it's serious nonsense, uh, into, the, into the foreseeable future. The problem with prediction, and here, here let me let you in on a professional secret that most strategists won't tell you, and I'm, I'm one of the, the people out there who actually makes a living at being a strategist. Uh, they will, most strategists will tell you that when a serious event occurs, it's analogous to a prism, a light prism. And I, as a professional, can tell you how that light is going to refract through the prism. The truth is that it's not a prism, it's a kaleidoscope. And nobody really knows how it's going to look when you, when you give it a twist. Uh, and I'll give you just one very simple example, because we're living through it right now. Is there anybody here who, if asked to prophesy about the next six months, this past January, would have gotten it right? Okay. But pick your event, whether it's 9-11. Um, would any of you have, if you were in America or, or, or prophesying over America, have been able to foresee the George Floyd event and its aftermath. And, right? I mean, really? Where did that come from? In retrospect, we can track it, but projecting it forward, impossible. And that's why my belief is that, you know, long-term projection in the mid prediction in the Middle East is a week and short-term is an hour. Beyond that, it's anybody's guess. Okay, thank you. Um, a question from Yosef Rosenzweig. With Iran, with the Iran deal with China on the verge of a bilateral trade deal, Iran-China agreement, including military arms, do you think that we can still say the U.S. leaving the Iran deal was a good thing? Um, he also noted that this is so fascinating regarding the Hassan Nasrallah Soleimani um, tip that you explained to us that I think a lot of us were hearing maybe for the first time. Breaking news. Um, thank you. And yes, first of all, I believe it would have happened anyway. I think that, that the Iranians got what they wanted 
from the JCPOA within the first few months of its enactment. And I choose my words carefully. Remember that it was not a treaty and it wasn't even a deal. Nobody ever signed it. It was a joint plan of something or other that was passed in the United Nations and nobody, nobody really cared about it. The Iranians got sanctions relief, which was critically important to them. The China deal for them is far more important and they would have gone for it anyway. In other words, there was nothing in the JCPOA that precludes them signing a deal with China. So it's kind of two different languages we're speaking. The American pulling out of JCPOA had absolutely no impact whatsoever. Uh, the Chinese are jockeying, and you might argue that they're pushing harder now because of their increased conflict with the United States. Uh, I don't know how many of you followed. Recently, America shut down the Chinese consulate in Houston. The Chinese today shut down the American consulate in Chengdu. Uh, the, the, there's a rising conflict going on between them. Uh, America has two carrier task forces in the Western Pacific. Uh, th th there's a lot of posturing going on. But the Chinese deal with Iran had, would have had, I'll put it the OA, JCPOA had no impact whatsoever on the Chinese deal with Iran. Okay, great. Thanks. There's one question of the, one last question of the night that I would like to ask. Um, I also had a, the same question. Are bilateral relations on a commercial basis uh, improving or not improving, or in fact, even getting stronger between Israel and China? Because if you live here, you know that there's a lot of business between Israel and China. So what do you have to say on that front? That's been going on for years. Um, China, China looks at Israel as something of, a, of an historical miracle. And let me, let me give you just sort of an interesting anecdote. Um, an acquaintance of mine, a businessman, was in China, an Israeli, American origin, was in China uh, on, on a business trip. And I don't know how many people are aware of this, but the Chinese culture is when, you, when a guest comes, uh, it's proper to give them a gift, a gift of significance. So, for example, when I was there, lecturing to them on Sun Tzu, they gave me a beautiful, um, traditionally bound copy of Sun Tzu's Art of War in Chinese and English with ivory. I mean, be really beautiful. What did they give this guy as he was about to leave? A beautifully bound copy of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And he sort of, what? And they said, what's the problem? We want to know how you do it. In other words, the Chinese didn't look at the protocols as something bad. They want to figure out how this little country actually controls the world. So they have a huge interest in maintaining a relationship to Israel because, because of the startup nation narrative, which is, is a true narrative, which they've turned into something even greater. What we consider to be anti-Semitic, and now we're seeing it on, on left and right, 
in the in the United States and and in Europe, right? Uh, the Jews control everything. The Jews, the Chinese look at, yeah, that's great. Can you teach us how to do it too? We on this end look at China as wow. If you can manage to sell a pair of underwear to every person in China, you're set for life. I'm being facetious, but that's that's kind of the nature of the relationship. They certainly would like to get their hands on our technology. We would certainly like to get our hands on their markets, whether they're technological or otherwise. And in that sense, it's a symbiotic relationship. Here, global politics gets in the way. Who do you go with, America or China? And obviously, the answer for us is America, because at least at this point, and again, I'm not going to predict and, and I'm not going to project, at this point, America's relationship with Israel is a combination of politics and strategy on the one hand, and a combination of morals, ethics, philosophy, religion on the other, and that makes it a far more stable relationship, and I say more stable, it's not, nothing's permanent, than a relationship with a country like China who can turn around tomorrow and say, you know what, we don't need you anymore, goodbye. Um, and let's, let's, let's just say the, the fact that America as a democratic republic also has to respond to some extent uh, to the beliefs and feelings of its population. China doesn't have that problem. Okay, thank you so much for all of the insights and the direct talk and the bold statements and the jokes. Um, I think this was great. Thank you so much. And we My are pleasure. going Yes. I hope that you'll join us again for the Sunset Series. And uh, we'll be back. Stay in touch with me. I'm going to, well, actually, before we completely end, there was a question, but I don't need for you to answer it. You could write it in the chat. I think that would be better in the chat. But one question from one of our uh, guests was, if you could share a few lesser known news outlets or websites that you like to visit for Middle East news. If you could write those in the chat, that would be great. I, I can um, tell you now that, 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 I, that there aren't. I use, um, if, if, if you don't mind my answering it this way, I use standard news sources. Um, but I use them for only one thing, and that is the standard journalist W's, who, what, when, where. Beyond that, there's there's no way of getting deep knowledge from current media sources. That's stuff that you need to delve into. And some of that is online and some of it isn't. And I think some of you can see some of my library in the background. I'm, I'm old school. I, I, like, I like books that I can actually feel, you know. Um, and this is not a coincidence. It, it's coincidentally here because I'm in the middle of a deep study on Hezbollah. Um, you've got to you've got to delve deeply to get to the background information, uh, understanding what's happening on a day to day, or listening to what's happening on a day to day. Who, what, when, where look at four or five sources. If they're all alike, it's probably correct um, or close enough for our purposes. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks everyone.
Um, I'm contact me if you need me. Uh, and one uh, yes. event. So Thursday, Wednesday night, which is the evening of Tisha B'Av, we're having a special program in conjunction with White City Shabbat. Uh, Temple Mount Vision will be having Yehuda Glick, former member of Knesset and Temple Mount activist, coming to speak about uh, Jewish presence in Zion, past, present, and future. And then we will have some, uh, uh, sharing some thoughts about Tisha B'Av. I'll, I'll be doing that. And then we'll have the Book of Lamentations, the Book of Echa being read as well. So I'd like to connect for the Tisha B'Av Day of Observance for the Morning of Jerusalem. Uh, look at the Tribe Tel Aviv Facebook page. And uh, if you follow us there, you'll be getting the updates and uh, the upcoming events. So that's what's coming up. We also have the Jewish Matters podcast on Wednesdays, uh, Exceptional Jewish Personalities, and on Sundays, Jewish Spirituality. And tonight's uh, audio will be on the Jewish Matters podcast on Spotify, Apple, and Google. I just put the, um, I put the link to your site, Rabbi Feldman, in the chat so that everyone can find this recording if they're looking for it. And also follow me on Instagram, follow me on Facebook, on Tribe Tel Aviv. I'm constantly posting about my events and I'm a news reporter. So I'm always writing stories and posting my stories. So you should be with me. And um, yes, everyone have a great and productive week. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Shannon. And stay tuned for our upcoming events. We will announce uh, the future Sunset Series as they end. Thank you so much. Thank you again, Elliot. My pleasure. Thank you, Javier. Good night, everyone. Good night, you.